Backroll Podcast number 401 for April 2nd, 2014. Brought to you by New Relic that helps everyone's software work better. Igloo, an intranet that you can actually use, and share file by Citrix, the professional way to share files. Hi, Ren. Hello, Chris. I couldn't find my mute button. <laughs> ah. Uh, you know, I, should, I wish I had a mute button for my entire voice this week. Um, we're recording <laughs> this earlier in the week than perhaps people listening to it or hearing it because, uh, well, it's just right after Macworld iWorld. And I think, well, I'll speak just for myself. I'm totally burned out and yep. uh, did nothing but talk last week. And now we're talking again. So here we are. So more more talking. Chris, how many panels did you do last week? I know I was joking on one of them that you were on all of the panels, but I'm pretty sure it was a pretty high number. I think the number was umpteen. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not sure how many that is exactly. But uh, well, perhaps it's the same case for you, because we both work remotely, and which mm-hmm. means we're often working alone, which often means we don't talk all day. And no, the uh, the change is a little bit more talking than I than I am perhaps used to in a day. Yeah, for me, it's it's completely an on off switch. When I'm at Macworld Eye World, I'm talking all the time, and then and the rest of the year I don't talk at all. So it takes me a while to kind of <coughs> get it going again, and then be able to put thoughts together in a string so that they sort of make sense. Coherent sentences are, are hard on the best of days, Yes, it, let alone it, after three days of nonstop talking. Indeed, they are. So hopefully we can put together some coherent sentences for the next several minutes, because... Fingers crossed. That's what people <laughs> expect from us. <laughs> if not, here is your caveat. Oh, oh good, good. Um, all right, so we've got a few topics today. The first one that seems to be getting a lot of news is that Apple and Samsung are going back into court, because apparently they don't have enough to do with their lawyers, and so they sue each other every so often. Yeah, and some are suggesting that this lawsuit is not really about Apple and Samsung, but it's really about Apple and Google, that this is a proxy war, much like countries will fight smaller countries, but what they're really after is after the countries that are backing them. Um, So in this case, Apple is going after, again, patent issues, saying, well, we were the ones who patented the idea of having a live a telephone number, for example, embedded in something. When you tap on it, then it launches the phone app and so that you can make a call directly from that. That's, of course, a feature that appears in Android and probably in Windows Phone and other operating systems as well. And yet Apple's... Just about everything. Yeah. I mean, it's an obvious feature, right? And so they're back in court. So one, do we care? Um, (laughs) Two... Is this any benefit at all? All these these lawsuits back and forth are they any benefit to us as end users? Uh, I would say no, personally. I you know the first lawsuit was somewhat interesting to follow because yes, I do think that Apple has a reasoning to go after Samsung and these other companies who are you know some of them have gone so far as to steal their intellectual property, some of them have just borrowed lavishly. Um, but either way. To the average consumer, this is just another, you know, it's it's two gigantic companies fighting over millions of dollars that your average user will never see in their day-to-day life. Um, and unfortunately, the fighting over these kind of patents, yes, you do need to protect your IP, but there's this weird in-between, right, where if companies are pushing so hard uh, to keep their IP, the, you know, to themselves and charging outrageous licensing fees for other companies to use their IP, it, it basically results in 
a stifling of innovation. Uh, so I guess from that end, you know, your average user can get a little bit, uh, a little bit stuck out in the cold if only one company is allowed to do certain things, and maybe that one company isn't innovating as fast as your your average user would like. Um, so, but I, I don't necessarily think that this lawsuit is is goes so far in that direction. But it's still, I, I, I just think it's, it's frustrating to, to your user. Oh, great. Two companies are fighting over millions of dollars over something that I'm never going to be able to understand because it's a bunch of random emails and, uh, and sketches and patents and things like that. Although on the plus side, occasionally we do get to see funny emails from Steve Jobs pop up in these. <laughs> and that's what we live for. It's the funny Steve Jobs emails. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I kind of think back and, and think if, if Og and and Og's mate had the opportunity to um, patent fire, or the wheel, or gravity, uh, where would we be today? Some of these things, obviously, yes, somebody filed a patent early on, and and things like tapping a, a phone number as a link and, and firing up an application. Yes, maybe somebody patented, but it is sort of an obvious. This is how technology functions sort of feature. So I wonder where you set the bar, where where somebody happened to be lucky enough to come up with, or brilliant enough to come up with a very obvious use for this device patented. And then anybody else who ever tries to make anything ever can't do so because they're in court for their entire lives and it drives the business. As you say, then what what's the result? That we end up with one manufacturer of one particular kind of device where things could be done wonderfully if it were opened up a little bit more. Uh, and then there's the whole, I think, sort of obscene idea that companies base their value on patents that they've acquired from somebody else. They didn't develop the patent. They bought it. And that's sort of, a, it seems to me, a bizarre and weird way to um, to carry on a business of trading ideas as if they were gold or or stocks or, or something else, with the end result being that, sure, the company benefits, but, but we as consumers, as you say, either we don't get features, or in the case of the last settlement, there's some older Samsung devices that are no longer available, or you can't purchase them in the, in the U.S. Most of the time, these are devices that are a generation old, so it's not that big a deal. But it is sort of a drag when somebody's going to come out with something that really could benefit all of us, and suddenly another company says, well, no, you can't because we have this patent from 15 years ago that maybe could loosely be interpreted as you're stealing our property, and therefore, no, you can't have it. Yeah, well, the patent war either goes two ways. It's either I'm not letting you have this at all, or absolutely you can have this for a fee. And right. that fee can be anywhere from a reasonable amount. I mean, if you look at iP um, Apple's early iTunes stuff and, and all the stuff with the iPod, Apple's licensed tons and tons of patents from other sources. But um, some of those licensing fees are a bit more reasonable than others. And I, there was a, a patent kerfuffle a while back uh, with small app developers and uh, some what we what are uncommonly known as patent trolls uh, were bothering app developers and basically suggesting that they needed to pay tens of thousands of dollars to license uh, something that related to in-app purchases, which seemed crazy. Uh, and luckily, sort of Apple stepped in on that, but not everything's finished in that in that regard. So you kind of see the the, the horror. Uh, aspect of this whole patent brouhaha. Right, and a lot of these small developers paid off simply because it was more expensive to go to court 
and fight this because that can go into hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars versus, all right, fine. Yeah, I mean, it's extortion, really. So just say, yeah, fine. Yeah. Here's your $10,000. Go away and, and let me carry on with my business. In the case of this Apple, Samsung, and again, Apple, Google, really, it's very personal. And I'm wondering if that ever lightens up or disappears entirely. We know this was a crusade for Steve Jobs. He was very bitter about it. He felt that Google had ripped them off with Android, and that seems to have carried through to the latest administration, that they, they are you know, defending their patents as they should. I get it. I get it that, that some things they really did patent that were very important, and, and they shouldn't allow somebody to get away with it. But as to your point that, yes, we could have a more reasonable discussion and say, yeah, you want to use this, pay us, instead of we are going to drive you into the ground because we are so personally offended by your actions <laughs> that we're going to go after you until the dying, you're dying. Steve Jobs even said it was worth you know, the equivalent of thermonuclear war. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, Steve, sorry, but come on, let's let it go a little bit, right? Yeah, I... It's hard, right? Because that is, in some way, the iPhone is very much one of Steve Jobs' uh, final legacies. And it makes sense to want to fight for things that you you have created and things that, uh, that are blatantly being stolen, uh, especially you know, when the, when the founder and, you know, uh, <laughs> no doubt a, a heavy part of the projects is deceased, uh, it, it creates sort of an additional, f additional fuel for the fire. Right. Um, but I, I don't know if I can see this going on forever. For one thing, their lawyers are going to start to get annoyed if nothing else. I know it's that what judge Lucy Coe seems to be hanging around most of these, patent cases, and I have no doubt that her patience has been tried from both Samsung and Apple. Uh, so I, I, it, it really depends. I don't know how long this can go on, though. I, I feel like there's, there's got to be a, a limit, right? Or, either that or I'm just, you know, crossing my fingers and praying. Well, I think there can be. We know that Apple and Nokia settled, finally, you know, because remember, they were in, they were in battles forever. And Nokia actually ended up prevailing. Um, and the two of them finally got together, and I think with some of the help of, of the European community and, and some of the judges in the case, because a lot of this was fought overseas, finally said, would you just grow up, the two of you, and start paying each other for the stuff that you're using, and that'll be the end of it. And that's, and that's eventually what happened, is that between the two companies, they settled on something, more money went from Apple to Nokia than the other way around, but it was done. But it didn't seem to be... A personal issue so much there again as where this Apple uh, Android thing is an Apple Google thing is and I think one of the things that Tim Cook has said is he doesn't wake up in the morning thinking what would Steve have done and I hope that cuts this way too in that I, I know that Steve was personally offended I know he had a grudge about this thing and he would have carried this on to the end of his days which in fact he did Maybe Tim can say, look, let's let's just start doing business again and let's try to let bygones be bygones a little bit and start paying each other for reasonable technology. And beyond that, let's let the, the personal injury go by the wayside. Okay, and so before we get to our next topic, let's hear a little something from New Relic. This one goes out to the developers, the people who make the tools and apps that power the devices we love. 
As a developer, you can pour your blood, sweat, tears, and late nights and weekends into your app and release it, but what then? You wait around for a few people to leave a review at the App Store as if that would determine if it's working the way it should and reaching the audience you intended? Hardly. New Relic can help, as it's helped major companies across the globe. New Relic is a software analytics company that makes sense of billions of metrics across millions of apps. They help the people who build modern software understand the stories that their data is trying to tell them, the kind of customer using the app, where to best target the app for future growth, and how the app is performing in the wild. New Relic helps everyone's software work better. The software that powers our apps, runs our databases, manages our accounts, and runs e-commerce sites and email programs. When software breaks, everyone loses. New Relic helps improve your software performance so your users have a better experience and your business is more successful. If you're a developer seeking greater insights into your data, give New Relic a try. It's easy. Just go to newrelic.com slash macworld for a free 30-day trial. That's newrelic.com slash macworld to start getting the information you need from the apps you've created. All right, so uh, on our next topic, uh, as you are probably aware and as most of the people listening to this podcast know, um, there was this not really interesting piece of software released midweek last week while we were starting up the whole Macworld, iWorld craziness. Was it Fla Flappy um, Birds brought, brought back? Yeah, Flappy Flappy Birds to Flappy Golf. That's right. Dan Franks is obsessed with that. <laughs> but, uh, but no, uh, Office for iPad has finally reared its head. And it's as full-featured as, as people would like it to be. It's gotten uh, quite positive reviews overall in its first few days of existence. Uh, people seem to be relatively happy. We had a first look from our PC World colleagues uh, that, that seems promising, and we're going to do our own more in-depth coverage on that a little bit later. Chris, what are your thoughts on, on Office? Well, I, you know, we heard the, the word from... Apple users, so Mac users, people who've really given up on Office in, in large part. A lot of us, certainly in our business, we rarely use Office. We're using Google Docs or we use text editors like BB Edit and, and other text editors. So for a lot of Apple people, it's sort of like, who cares? Because we're not using Office anyway. But I think a lot of people forget that the majority of people using iOS devices are Windows users because they're more Windows computers out there and they get to use these wonderful devices as well. For them, I think it was a really big deal. I talk a lot to iPad business users and they keep asking, when is Office coming to the iPad? Because I really don't want to have to jump through the hoop of bringing in, an, uh, say, a Word document, bringing it in through pages, importing it, exporting it as a, as a Word doc. What I really want is something that looks very much like the experience I have on my PC and work that way on my iPad. So I think for them, it's a huge deal. And I think that explains why it's done so very well at the App Store, at least up to this point. I think just yesterday or the day before, Microsoft had the top four spots on the App Store, which is a pretty big deal. Yeah. So good for them for bringing it over. The complaints I've seen is, one, it really is meant to push you toward Office 365, which I think is what we expected anyway. But for some people, that was sort of a shock that they can't just buy a copy of it, but rather they get it for free. They have a limited capability to use it in that they can read documents but not create them unless they get Office 365. And, um, and then other people are... <sighs> 
rightly or wrongly disappointed that it doesn't do everything that, you know, for example, people who are real spreadsheet geeks, they want the full capability of Excel on their iPad. It's just not going to happen. These are mobile apps. They're going to be pared down a little bit. Major capabilities and features are going to be there, but not everything. So if you're expecting the same kind of power in Excel on your iPad that you're getting from your computer, dream on, not going to happen. Well, it's the same thing from uh, from any porting any app over. I mean, you look at, uh, speaking of Microsoft, you look at the way that uh, that Microsoft has ported its apps over to the Surface, and the complaints there are the opposite, where it's just it's not ported over well mm-hmm. enough for touch, and it makes it impossible to use. So would you rather have all of your Excel features in a program that you can barely stand to touch, or would you rather have you know, a smattering of those features, those the most important of the features done really well and miss, miss out on some of the more niche features that you might find on the desktop application. And for me, it's always going to be the latter. Right. <clears throat> yeah, I think, and, and that's generally the way the iPad works. You can certainly do a lot of things on an iPad and some apps you can do exactly what you can do on the desktop. But in many cases, you're really getting a subset. The idea being, if you're going to do very, very, very serious business work or very, very, very serious creative work, not that you can't do some of that on an iPad, but you start on your computer, get most of what you need done there, and then you put it on your iPad and you, and you do a little tweaking there, or um, you know you have some kind of extra thing you, you're going to throw in there at another time. One thing I think people are rightly upset about is that the sharing services are terrible. There's no Dropbox support. So basically, you have to put it onto app onto Microsoft's uh, cloud storage, and there are things like no printing, which I'm not a big printer these days, but but it seems like a, a strange omission considering that AirPrint's been around what since iOS five mm-hmm. a few years ago. So even if this software has been sitting on the shelf for a couple years and maybe just received an iOS seven uh, sprucing. There is no excuse not to not to be able to print unless either a Microsoft d- deliberately crippled it and uh, from their sort sort of uh, embarrassed response to the no printing debacle. I'm guessing that's not the case, or they just they didn't think that it might have been an issue, or they thought, oh well, no one prints from an iPad. That's silly. They use a computer for that, and I think you know maybe getting a. a First-hand look at yes, people do use their uh, their iPad for a lot more than than basic consumption, despite your hesitation. Yeah, I and mean, you would think that there would be a way to tie into a system resource, and maybe that's the case. Maybe they all all they had to do is throw a few lines in there and say, yeah, enable the print command in here, so that we can do that as well. Or is it that, and I, I don't mean to be a conspiracy guy about it, but or is it that they they're leaving out several really obvious features? so that you do have to get Office 365. But even with it, because we have Office 365 at at the office, uh, we can't print either. We can't use Dropbox. It does seem like kind of a a goofy thing to leave out. Although, on the other hand, we do see some really high-profile apps come out that don't do certain things that you naturally expect them to do. And then they go, oh, yeah, well, that's going to be in the next version. However, if this has been sitting on the shelf for a a year or so, it, it seems a little odd that somebody somewhere along the line didn't think, you know, most people have to do sort of round trip things through Dropbox or, or Box or, or one of these other services or even iCloud. So maybe we should put that in. And yes, people do want to print, particularly uh, people who are 
traveling around as, as their business tool, and they're going to offices in various places, and, and they do need a printout. What are they going to do? Well, uh, maybe I could kind of email it to you, but that doesn't seem to work very well. doesn't quite work. Yeah, right. So um, glad they're there. They look good. Uh, as somebody who uses Office sometimes, I was not at all surprised by anything I found in the interface. It didn't seem like it was goofy or, or difficult to use. Um, but, uh, you know, a few more capabilities, please, Microsoft. And um, and you could have a hit here. We'll see. It'd be really nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you think it's going to stay on the top of the charts, though? Or is this just a curiosity because they're free? A bunch of people downloaded them and then, and then maybe won't use them so much. Yeah, I, I think we'll we'll have to wait and see, uh, as with most of my answers on this on subjects like this. I uh, I definitely think they'll be top charts for at least the next week or two. I mean, they are. It's enough of. It's an app that's been enough of a. We've been waiting for it for months and years and years that anybody who potentially needs to use Office is going to download it. Whether or not those people will pay for an Office 360 subscription, and I should note, I do think it's interesting that Microsoft caved and uh, is you know, letting Apple take its 30% mm -hmm. out of their uh, 365 subscription if you subscribe through the app. Uh, I, I don't know if everybody who downloads will, will pay the 365 subscription or even if we'll see that sort of drop on the top grossing over the next few months. Uh, but I, I do think it had a very strong start. I think we'll probably continue to see more of that as uh, as more people download it and, and get a chance to play with it. Right. Well, and, and part, I think, one of the reasons it, it did so well in, in the first few days, other than the fact that it was Office, uh, that Microsoft did offer some deals on, um, on an Office 365 subscription. So I'm glad they dropped that shoe along with it, saying, yes, you have to have Office 365. But however, act today and we'll knock, I think, I think I saw prices like $49 or something if you got it through certain avenues. I don't know if those deals are even still around. I think they were pretty short-lived. But it was a smart thing to do uh, if people are going to resent yeah. that. Say, yeah, yeah, we know. But here, you know, here's the Incentives. Discount. Yeah. And with that, let's take another break. And this time, we're going to talk about Igloo, an internet that you'll actually use. If you're like a lot of people, you work with an office internet and you probably have mixed feelings about it. And the mix may tend toward, ugh. Igloo is an internet you'll actually like. It's built with easy to use apps like shared calendars, Twitter like microblogs, file sharing, and more. It's all built in and everything is social, meaning you can share it, you can comment on it, rate it, and like it, whatever. The whole idea is you get your company communicating better and more openly rather than just hating on the internet and ignoring everyone connected to it. Igloo also gives your team places to work and collaborate, and that puts control into your hands without compromising the needs of your IT team. Meaning that the IT team can manage permissions and have centralized authentication with LDAP and SAML while enabling your teams to create new workspaces, new pages, and add things like a marketing blog channel or a professional services calendar without having to put in a request to IT. It's all drag and drop. To try it for yourself, go to igloosoftware.com slash macworld and you can see a bunch of case studies from their customers, head to one of their events, or you can check out the five reasons to switch from SharePoint. So give Igloo a try. It's free to use for up to 10 people, enough to get your whole team on board, and it's very affordable after that. Again, give it a go at igloosoftware.com slash Macworld. So at the top of the show, we talked about our many days spent at Macworld iWorld talking. And other than talking, 
we did have a chance to actually kind of get a vibe from the show and look around. So, Ren, what were the uh, highlights of the show for you? Uh, for me, the show is always about seeing fantastic people and, and meeting app developers, meeting uh, designers, getting actually getting to meet our readers, too. We had a really successful kind of Ask the Editors panel at the end of the show. And uh, I did a couple of panels where I got to talk to folks at the at the end of them about ebooks and about pages, about creative professionals using Macs. Uh, there was a, a lot of interaction with really awesome, awesome people, um, which is really becoming sort of the highlight of my show. There are some uh, some fun toys. I'm actually playing with one right now. I got some some new lenses from Alloclip to to review, including they had a a macro station at their booth that basically looked like something out of the San Francisco Exploratorium or your local science museum, where they have these these awesome new macro lenses that you can slide onto your iPhone, and then they had a a, a tray of various things that that look a lot cooler if you put an Alloclip and a with a macro lens and an iPhone and get close to them. And, Things like uh, beetle scales or uh, or uh, wood or feathers uh, that you know look one way mm-hmm. when you just look at them with your naked eye, and quite another when you when you look at them up close. Uh, as usual, I think my my favorite part of the show floor proper was the Appapalooza section, which is all iOS apps uh, and Mac apps, and the Actually, this year we had a, and I don't know if it was actually branded as the Kickstarter group, but there was a, a small center with, with tiny tables for folks who were clearly either had gotten their backing on Kickstarter or Indiegogo or a similar service uh, and were showing off their products. And actually, one I saw on the last day uh, called Pocket Tripod. I ended up, I it's a, a plastic business card sized sheath for a, for a tri basically a, a stand for your for your iPhone and you know I look at it and it's plastic and it, it looks a little strange and I thought okay well this is probably really cheap and and not really well designed and and I can probably pass it by and the uh the CEO kind of grabbed me and was like please like give me 5 minutes of your time and I will explain to you why this is probably the coolest iPhone stand that you've ever seen and you know what? Five minutes later, I was pretty convinced this is much cooler than it has any right to be and much more well-designed and uh, and very, very sturdy for a piece of plastic. It, it's really, really cool. So I'm, I'm grateful for uh, for the booths like that where it's, you know, stuff that I would completely pass up online and complete, you know, not give a second glance to actually getting to talk to the folks who made it and getting to see uh, demonstrations in person of products that I wouldn't request based off of a press release or a, a website. Yeah, this show, and I, I, we've always seen an element of this kind of Kickstarter-ness to it, but now the Kickstarter is such a thing and and other outfits like it, I think we did see more sort of like little guys and gals coming in and and showing off kind of cool stuff that they were they were developing some of them weren't fully realized yet but you could certainly see the idea fleshed out and some of them were available then and it, obviously it's a change from way back in the apple days and we've we've talked about this at length at the show but um it's great to see the big companies represented there canon was there this year and and some others but at the same time a lot of these things, like when HP used to come and, and have like, you know, this a huge floor space and, and lots of printers, 
there's only so much you can get out of it. You know, it's like, oh, look, there's a $15,000 printer. Huh. And so for sort of a typical showgoer, the booth was impressive, but maybe there wasn't so much in it for them. This kind of smaller show, though, where you get to talk to the actual developers, not just, you know, a PR representative, is interesting in its own right and, and attractive in its own right, that you get to see cool stuff that you personally might use versus that $15,000 printer. Yes, there were fewer developers than in the past, but what there was there, it wasn't like traipsing aisles of iPhone case after iPhone case, which has been the been an issue in the past. There were some, of course, but um, I think there was an interesting variety of stuff. Not not big stuff, not Fortune 500 stuff, but stuff for us as consumers and fans of, of Apple stuff. And I think that's where the Expo folks have kind of pointed the show, that it's a more intimate thing than it once was, but uh, more relevant, I think, to the kind of people that would come to this sort of show. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's much more about your daily uh, daily gadgets that actually have a reason to be in your house or in your wallet or on your wrist rather than you know we see a lot of vaporware at ces and and trade shows that get a lot of crazy coverage macworld is less i think now about showing off uh brand new products or prototype products as it is uh giving you a taste of products that you may not normally see or products that so far you've only seen in the news and here are they they're here in the flesh and they can be bought from the show floor yeah one thing i think that hasn't changed really is the content within the conference sessions and on the main stage well no changed a little bit um what they would do in the past is you know post apple when when steve would come out and, and give the keynote they would kind of have celebs show up and they would, you know, Ashton Kutcher talked about his movie last year. Uh, Fred Armisen was there last year. Um, this year they had Scoble doing a keynote. I didn't see it. But, um, you know, he's not like Steve Jobs. And he's uh, he's not even like Fred Armisen. He's like Robert Scoble. The, the sessions that we did on the main stage, and actually the Macworld staff was responsible for a lot of them, was not so much about celebrities talking about, you know, whatever they were pimping. You know, I've got this new thing happening. And they sort of wrap it around technology so it's relevant in some way. I felt that the main stage sessions were a higher percentage educational than they can yeah. be or they have been in, in the past. Not that there there wasn't educational components before, but it seemed like there was a greater percentage of it. So the people would walk out of the room instead of thinking, wow, I just saw a movie star. They walked out instead saying, I learned 15 things that I didn't know before I walked in this room, and, and that has value to me. And I was pleased to see that. Again, it's it makes it an interesting uh, sell for people wanting to come to the show because they don't see, wow, there's a movie star coming. Instead, they really have to think, what do I want to learn here? So it, not only is it more of a fan event, but it's also an educational event. And and again, I like that aspect of it because I think that's part of the core of of what we do is really educating people about what's out there and then how to do things with the technology that they love. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that it's it's so valuable to have sessions like that that are 
I won't say uh, reasonably priced, but more reasonably priced than your average, you know, $2,000 crazy conference. Um, so you have sort of a in-between where you can go and you can get the occasional session at the Apple Store, which is really helpful. Um, but it's only at Macworld where you get sort of this <laughs> this smorgasbord of uh, various things to learn about. And we had, you know, all sorts of really awesome to- uh, talks and topics that I wish I could have gone to. We had stuff on the NSA. We had stuff on iCloud. Renee Ritchie came down from Montreal to do that. You and I were doing Mac 911 and stuff about professional creatives. It was just, it was a really, really enjoyable, really fun uh sort of across the board uh, options for for viewing talks and and digesting new information. And I I really enjoyed it this year. I did too. I absolutely did. So uh, I look forward to next year. I I, I talked to Paul Kent a lot because I'm in the Mackerel All-Star Band with him and he's a friend of mine. But also I just, I like to gauge what his sense is of the show. And he was really happy. You know, he realizes it's a smaller show than it once was. We all do. You know, this is no surprise to anybody. When Apple leaves, things happen and it gets smaller. But he really felt like the show has settled in that for the first couple of years after Apple wasn't there, people would come in and say, oh, well, you know, Apple's not here and we're not seeing as many products as we did before. And and Adobe's not here, not because of Apple, but, you know, Adobe was having its financial issues as well. And Microsoft's not here and they were cutting back on their budgets. And now that you kind of, if that's gone, people are used to the idea that the show has kind of transformed into something that, is different. It's not the show you're going to go and get a bag and, and fill it up with flyers and, and buttons and flashy things, but rather a place that you get educated. And, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm happy to, I'm repeating myself, but I'm, I'm happy to see it um, <laughs> work out that way. Yeah, me too. Uh, so let's talk now about ShareFile by Citrix which is something I talked about, actually, at one of my sessions, my iPad for Business session. And then we'll be back and wrap up. At last week's Macworld iWorld, I taught a course on the iPad for Business. Now, a big part of using a device like this in business is the ability to move files securely from place to place. One of the tools I mentioned for doing just that is ShareFile by Citrix, the professional file sharing service for business. Unlike standard email attachments, ShareFile sends your attachments at secure links, handling files up to almost any size, and by any size I mean up to about 5 gigabytes. ShareFile uses up to AES 256-bit encryption with either SSL or TLS protocols, and your files are encrypted every moment that they're on Citrix's servers. Only you and your recipients have access to the data that they hold. In addition to top-level encryption, ShareFile can let you know when your files have been opened and by whom. Plus, you can access those files from a laptop, tablet, or a smartphone. I've used ShareFile, and honestly, it's the goods. If you're not using it, give it a try by signing up for a free trial now. No credit card required, nothing to lose. You'll see why millions of professionals rely on it every day. So get started today with a special 30-day free trial. Go to sharefile.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter Macworld. That's sharefile.com, and type in Macworld. And finally, this isn't really related to Apple, but I think it's an interesting thing going on in um, in the world where you can have only so many giants. And in, in the world now, in technology, we have Apple and we have 
Google and Microsoft, sort of. And then there was Yahoo, which kind of just went away. You know, it was it was around. People sort of <laughs> remembered that their little country slogan and the yodel, but it really wasn't doing anything until um, Marissa Meyer came in from from Google, and suddenly it got interesting again. Uh, she and and the board and everybody else started throwing money at certain things like Flickr came back in a really interesting way that people had forgotten about it and thought oh I'm going to start using this again to um, share my photos uh, at CES they announced uh, Yahoo Tech which is a, a website that's led by the former New York Times David Pogue now now Yahoo's David Pogue who does a lot of things he actually used to be a, a Macworld writer years ago and the next thing that seems to be happening is there's talk of them throwing money to create a YouTube competitor. Um, that they're supposedly in negotiations with some of YouTube's biggest talent and offering them more money than YouTube would get them. So what I'm thinking here is, can Yahoo succeed simply by throwing a lot of money around? <laughs> well, it hasn't stopped the uh, the studios, uh, but I, I actually think this uh, Yahoo's pseudo YouTube competitor, and I really wouldn't compare it even so much to YouTube as I would to something like Hulu for YouTube stars, mm -hmm. uh, in that I think what Yahoo is really interested in doing is, I hate to use the word, but they're curating uh, video content that they think, or specifically people, that they think are really interesting and they think have a good enough following to get users, to get more users over to their site. I mean, you saw them do this with Pogue and News to try and sort of drum up interest for, oh, let's make Yahoo News relevant again. Let's, let's see if people will come and read our stuff. Uh, I think this is the same sort of dipping the toe in the water in the video front is let's get these people uh, that are really respected on YouTube and let's get let's pay them some money to do some Yahoo specific or some do some do some art uh, with Yahoo branding. Do it on Yahoo's site and see if we can we can get some interest and some support. Uh, let's you know, let's pull in all of the all of the high talent this year. Uh, and I, I think that's not actually a bad move on their part because, you know, if you just start, if you start a YouTube clone from the ground up, what's, why, why should people use right. it? Why is it better than YouTube? When you add people who, uh, who fellow YouTube users respect and admire and enjoy to such a service, um, or if you just angle that service specifically towards those types of people first get the enthusiasm for the pl for the platform and the service there then it's a lot easier to open it up to your average american who's like oh well if pomplamoose is using yahoo then i might as well give it a shot well that seems to be the common theme when you look at at this kind of service and then and then the pog move and and one or two other things that they've done is they're going after kind of the common person and one i wonder if there's an audience there I mean, if the common person hasn't been interested in technology before, why would Yahoo's interest in it compel them to? And how does everyone else react? Is I mean, at CES, when, when they announced the, the Yahoo tech site with Pogue coming out, where he basically insulted everybody else in the tech journalism business, which I think was funny, but probably not great, because if you want people to link to your site, you don't really want to do that. Uh, so, but how does 
how does Google react to this? If Yahoo comes in and says, well, we're going to be in the curation business, and actually we're going to present the best stuff instead of everything, does Google let them have that? Or does Google think, hmm, maybe we need a little more curation ourselves and counter their move with, uh, with kind of a subset of Google, the best of, of uh, YouTube? Yeah, um, I think they probably have to go th through uh, through the best of YouTube, right? I there's there's no way that they can just launch it straight out. Yeah, yeah, and they do. I mean, they certainly have channels there, which I think they're trying to do. But but YouTube is such a mass of stuff, which is great, you know, because you can find anything there. But but you can also find anything. Exactly, <laughs> you can find anything there. So it makes me think of like Beats Music, where people have done this. Uh, this audio streaming thing for quite some time and it's great because you have 15 18 million tracks somewhere but without <laughs> somebody's careful hand in there who really knows the content picking out the best stuff for you you can just wander in there like at home you can be lost yeah, like it's like going to home depot right and <laughs> kind of looking looking around going i have no idea where anything is in here i know it's here but where and then at the end of the day, you end up just listening to the same two albums over and over again because, oh, well, I know these albums, I know these people, rather than maybe broadening your music horizon. Um, but yeah, I think curation uh, could be a really strong path for Yahoo to take here. And I don't, again, I don't necessarily think that they want to create a YouTube clone. I think they want more eyes on their service, mm -hmm. more eyes on Yahoo as a brand um, because... Right now, they don't. They have a user problem first and foremost. They don't have a lack of talent problem. They don't have even lack of interesting services. Flickr is a great services service, for example, that's been you know horribly neglected over the last couple of years, and as a result, people have kind of started fleeing. So if if Yahoo is serious about putting some cash behind their efforts to to sort of Bruce up their brand. I think that's actually one of the best things they can do. Well, I think it's the only thing they can do. I think that they yeah. brought her in, and and she's a very smart person. She knows what she's doing, and I think it really needed resources thrown at it. I'm not sure where they're coming up with them because they weren't doing terribly well prior to this. But I have to think that when she negotiated coming over there, part of the deal was if we're going to do this, we've got to be serious. Now the question is, how long have they committed? To being serious, uh, clearly they spent a lot of money on Pogue and the, and the news site, and they looks like they're going to spend a lot of money on this. And they've changed the the marketing, they've changed Yahoo Mail, they're trying to make this a uh, viable brand again. At what point, somebody somewhere up the line saying, "Okay, we're going to close the checkbook now and uh, and evaluate where we are because we just can't keep spending money. This is this has got to become a thing so that people think of us and Google and Apple all at the same time instead of like, oh yeah, Yahoo's still around. The the redheaded, the purple headed stepchild. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> I hope. Yeah, I don't know when that, what that date is. Right. I mean, she's been at the company for almost two years now. Um, and you got to assume that she asked for a certain amount of time to be like, yeah, because this is not, Rome was not built in a day. This cannot happen overnight. Uh, but you're right in that I do think that the, the checkbook and the people, people concerned on the board, Yahoo is a public company, uh, they're, they're going to have to start making some revenue sooner or later in order to, to ease worried stockholders. Or at least up to the point where they're acquired by Facebook. <laughs> so hopefully that wasn't an ambulance coming for 
for Yahoo, saying, no, you're done. Sorry, that's all we can do for you. So I would like to see Yahoo succeed. Uh, the idea of, of the Internet dominated just by Google and Facebook is a little depressing to me. I like the idea that somebody's coming in and saying, in order for us to succeed, we've got to put out really, really great content, and we're willing to put money into it. Uh, the danger, of course, is that they become successful, they get lots of eyeballs there, and then they start taking advantage of their audience and crap up the site, so that now you've just got another one that's like, yeah, you had so much, oh, look what you just did. Sorry. Yeah, they need to, especially you see things like Facebook is getting a major pushback from brands right now for playing with their eyeball metrics so that fewer people are actually seeing what brands are posting. There's there's a lot of pushback on these sort of uh, gotcha uh, designs. Oh, you can have all this for free. Oh, it's no problem. Ha, just kidding. We need to make money. So if, if Yahoo's, you know, uh, trying to lure people towards its service, it might want to do it so, do it up front and not in a, we're going to slowly add features that make you hate the service more and more. Well, that seems to be what happens, right? If, Regardless of whatever it is, Facebook was great when it started, and then it just got, you know, in my estimation, it just got worse and worse, and, and mining more of your data, uh, messing with, with advertisers, um, Google, same way. Twitter, about a year ago, started looking like it was going to head in that direction, and I think it got so much pushback from its users that... It, it backed off, but in order to be profitable, you can't just say, hey, we've got a cool idea, angel investors, give us money. That's not a profit center. Those people want to see a profit out of this somehow. And uh, unfortunately, that the profit seems to come from making the service less desirable and taking away features that people came there in the first place for. Um, so it's a, it's a rough business, I understand. And on that note of agreement, silent agreement, um, let's just <laughs> call this a day. Um, we're both beat. It was a great week last week. There's some cool stuff happening in tech this week, but frankly, we're sleepy. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> with, with any, without any further, without any further ado, yeah. we're going to go have a nap. So, uh, <laughs> we're going to go write about some cool stuff, uh, have a, you know, have some relaxation time, write about some cool stuff. And, and then you'll see hopefully more coherent versions of, of Chris and I, uh, in paper or a digital paper, uh, on macworld.com later. This and week. certainly next week when we're speaking at you, <laughs> it, will, it will be more coherent. <laughs> And, we and promise, sleepy. maybe. Maybe so. Uh, so, again, Ren, great talking with you. Great talking to you, too, Chris, as All always. All right, let's talk again next week. Sounds like a plan. And that wraps up another edition of the Macworld Podcast, brought to you by New Relic that helps everyone's software work better, Igloo, and the Internet that you'll actually use, and ShareFile by Citrix, the professional way to share files. Thanks very much for listening. 